Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. I bring you greetings from Hinson Baptist Church. It's kind of the old Second Baptist Church, uh, Portland, Oregon. I've been struck this weekend. This is my first time in Albuquerque. I've been struck this weekend by how similar our weather in Portland is to yours here in Albuquerque. <laughs> it's true. That weather yesterday looks like today too. That's our weather, like nonstop, from like July 1st to about now. And then it just continues. It's just the sunshine comes to us in liquid form after that. And we just get liquid sunshine. But it's, uh, it's been a real treat to be with you, to be able to uh, work with, with Ryan and the others on the workshop this weekend and to be able to enjoy the Bloom Festival uh, this morning. You know, despite the, the happy face of the festival, and it is just a glorious sight, and this is a fun weekend to be here in Albuquerque, uh, I would be remiss if, if I didn't acknowledge that actually in our country this last week or so, it has not been all that happy, right? There's been a lot going on from Las Vegas to Puerto Rico, yet another hurricane hitting the Gulf Coast uh, last night. There's a lot that's been going on this week and the last week that draws our sympathy, that draws our attention. But between all of that going on domestically and between all the fun you're having here in Albuquerque, I wonder if you have noticed what's been going on on the world stage the last week or two. All over the place, treaties and confederations have been unraveling all around the world. From the Iran nuclear deal to NAFTA, from what looks like the potential breakup of Spain to the Kurdish referendum in Iraq. All over the place, nations have been trying to get out of treaties. They've been trying to get out of relationships because they were, fairly or not, they were convinced that they were on the losing side of the relationship. And I think what goes on out there with nations actually finds its own reflection in our lives, right? As we move from the world stage to the personal stage. I wonder if you've noticed anything similar. Maybe in your circle of friends, a marriage that is breaking up, not, not necessarily because of infidelity, but because one partner feels deeply unappreciated and neglected. On the losing side of that marriage relationship. Or, or a friendship that's estranged because one friend constantly feels taken advantage of. Or, or, or maybe you're familiar with a workplace that's filled with resentment over inequity, whether real or perceived. Whether it's foreign relations or personal relations, we all play the game, it seems, the same way. We, we play the game of life as a zero-sum game. There are winners and there are losers. And we pursue our foreign policy, national or personal, with an aim to, to win. To, to come out on top, or at least not come out on the very bottom. Given the way that that seems to be the way relationships work, at the geopolitical level and the personal level, it's reasonable to ask, is that the way relationship with God works? If we enter into treaty with God, because he's God, are we inevitably on the losing side? I think that's what a lot of people think. 
I think that's what a lot of people assume, that to enter into a relationship with God means he's the winner, and in some sense or another, I, I lose. I lose freedom. I lose, I lose some measure of happiness. I, I, I'm losing something. But what if God gives even better than he receives in his foreign relations with us? This morning, I want us to consider that question as we look at the, the final word that the Bible has to say on Solomon's good government in 1 Kings chapter 10, a passage that is actually all about foreign relations. So, so turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 10. I have no idea what version of Scripture you're, you're using out there in your Bibles. In my church, we're still preaching from the old NIV, so that's what I'm going to read from. Uh, so don't let that be a distraction to you. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, let me set the scene. We're, we're a little over halfway through Solomon's reign at this point. He reigned for 40 years in the nation state of Israel. And this is, this chapter, this is the high watermark of Old Testament history. The temple has been built and it's glorious. The nation is at peace and its boundaries are exactly where God said they would be someday. From the great river Euphrates all the way down to the brook of Egypt. From the great sea in the west to the great desert in the east. And Israel has a king who is the epitome of wisdom. It seems at this point, as chapter 10 opens, that all of God's promises are being fulfilled. And so we get this sort of final summary of Solomon's greatness in chapter 10. And as I said, it revolves around his foreign relations. And it turns out that this is not a zero-sum game when it comes to God. God's king actually gives even better than he receives. So I want to look at both halves of that idea. First, God's king is a blessing to the nations. God's king is a blessing to the nations. He gives. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built and the food on his table and the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. 
Hiram ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there they brought great cargoes of almagwood, precious stones. The king used the almagwood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace, and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much almagwood has never been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. All right, like, like, like any head of state, Solomon receives ambassadors. And in this case, it's a state visit from the Queen of Sheba, which is what we would think of as modern-day Yemen these days. She's traveled about 1,500 miles, and she has brought an incredible entourage. She's, she's probably there to negotiate a trade agreement, but personally, she tells us, she'd heard of Solomon's fame and his relation to the Lord. So she wanted to see with her own eyes if the reports were true. And, and she brought with her not only all sorts of gifts and all sorts of wealth and presents for King Solomon, she brought her hard questions. And she put those questions to the wisest king on earth. And as she confesses there, she finds that the reports didn't tell the half of it. Solomon's wisdom and the glory of his reign exceeded all of her expectations. And, and when she takes it all in, the wisdom, the glory, the, the wealth, and especially the blessed state of his subjects, well, it takes her breath away. She is literally overwhelmed at seeing Solomon in all of his glory. And I, I think I just want to pause there and, and say to, to, you, to the Christians that are gathered here this morning, Christian, you understand this, this is going to be our response when we see Jesus as he really is, exalted in his kingdom. I mean, when I was a little kid, I thought heaven was going to be boring. Heaven is not going to be boring. It's going to be breathtaking. I mean, so pause and just, just think about the most breathtaking thing you've ever seen. I mean, several things come to my mind. I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. I thought it was just absolutely amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. And then I went to Africa, and I saw the Great Rift Valley. And oh my goodness, there are even things more breathtaking than the Grand Canyon. Coming up to the edge of that escarpment, and the earth just drops away sheer, and as far as the eye can see, just animals... And then these huge volcanoes rising up out of the plain. I was, as we say in England, gobsmacked. I was overwhelmed. Of course, the thing that comes to my mind, maybe more than anything else, is when I got that first sight, not of a thing, but of a person. My wife, on our wedding day 27 years ago, I had the wind knocked out of me just by seeing her. Oh, friends, this is what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. Oh, yeah, heaven is going to be amazing. It's going to be breathtaking, like, like, those, like that first sight of the Grand Canyon or, or, or whatever. But what it's really going to be like is seeing Jesus, like I saw my wife that day, seeing Jesus in all of his beauty and his glory 
and my breath is going to be taken away. Remind yourself of that. As, as, you, as you live through day by day, the, just the kind of the dreary reality of, of day by day life, the ho-humness of day by day life, remind yourself. And then live for that day. Now, now, if you're not a Christian, I want you to just consider what's going on here. The, the Queen of Sheba came 1,500 miles to hear Solomon's wisdom. About 1,000 years later, Jesus would point that out and then say to those who were listening to him, one greater than Solomon is here. And he was referring to himself. So, so I just, I, I, I want to ask you, if you're not a believer, are, are you willing to hear Jesus and, and the wisdom that he offers? I, I wonder what your hard question for him is. I, I assure you he's up for it. Ask him. Put your hardest questions to him. Whatever it is, though, understand that the hardest question is how to know God, how to be received by him. And Jesus himself is the answer to that question. He is not only wise, he is the wisdom of God. J Jesus is the one who answers the question, how can we know God? How can we be received by God? For in his weakness... He defeated our greatest adversary, death. In the, in the folly of the cross, he actually confounded the wisdom of the world. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In his flesh, Jesus was the son of David, Solomon's heir. But he was also the son of God. God in the flesh. And amazingly, beyond, beyond all expectation, beyond, beyond anything that the wisdom of the world would say would happen, Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, he suffered not for his folly, but for our folly. He, he paid the price, not, not for his disobedience, but for our rebellion. And God vindicated him. He raised Jesus from the dead and 40 days later, he ascended to heaven where he is sitting on the throne even now. And now he calls us to sue for peace and to be reconciled with God through him. How, how do you do that? How, how do you come to this great and glorious king and sue for peace? Because we know that we are not at peace with him in our natural state. Well, the queen actually shows us. 
Her response is to confess how great and glorious Solomon is and to praise God for his love in giving his people such a king. And then she gives to Solomon her greatest treasure, all this gold and spices. Friends, this is how we respond to King Jesus. Our response should be no less. He he calls us to confess how great and glorious he is in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. He he calls us to to recognize and to to praise God that, that in his coming and in his death and in his resurrection, we see God's love for us in giving him to us. And then to give him our greatest treasure, our lives. See, when we come to Jesus... We do not come to him merely as a savior. He is that. He saves us from our sins, but we come to him as Lord and as king. And he calls us to bend the knee to him. Friends, this is what it means to become a Christian. Not just to pray a prayer, though that probably needs to happen somewhere along the way. But to be someone who turns away from being king and lord of their own lives and instead submits to the saving, reigning love of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't describe you, then please don't leave here today without talking to someone about how that could describe you. I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards. So feel free to come and talk to me. Talk to the person you came with. But one way or another today, you must deal with Jesus, the King. Christian, we need to understand that Jesus' reign, even now, is the signal of God's love for his people. His his love for us isn't shown by by giving us anarchic freedom. Anarchy brings misery, and I should know that because I live in Portland and we have a huge anarchist group. No, Jesus loves us by by reigning over us, by giving us good and wise authority to reign over us. And and that reign begins now. It begins right now in, in the church. Jesus Christ is ruling over us by his word, which is why if we're going to follow Jesus as Christians, as disciples, we need to join a local church. We need to make our lives accountable to his word as it's held out to us, as it's administered by the authority that Christ himself put in the church through elders. There's there's no such thing as as Lone Ranger discipleship. There's no such thing as unaccountable discipleship. No, he calls us to submit our lives to his. And he does so not like to put his thumb on us. No, he does so so that the world will see how great his love is. When, when, When the world begins to see his rule bringing blessing to our lives, their breath should be taken away. Is, is, is that the way Albuquerque responds to what they observe of your life together, the rule of Christ in your life together? That, that, that their breath is taken away. It should be. I, I remember when I first got to, to Portland, uh, I met uh, this, this young fellow uh, who's actually a member of your church here now, George. George is from Africa. And this older white couple had basically adopted him 
and made him their, their honorary grandson as he was all alone here in the States. What would motivate an older white couple to kind of adopt a, a young African immigrant? The reign of Jesus' love in their hearts. Or, or I think about when, again, I just having been in Portland for a year or so, uh, one of my kids became incredibly ill. And we needed help. Only the kind of help we needed wasn't our lawn mowed and meals delivered to put in the fridge. No, I needed somebody that I could call at three in the morning when crisis struck. I, I needed someone who, where when it just got too much to bear, I could send my ill son to just like hang out with them for a day or a weekend so my wife and I could get some respite. I was only one year into this church and this is going on and this was not easy and I was not yet beloved. But this young couple stepped up and they said, we want to be that kind of help for you. And they poured their lives into my broken and hurting family. And they cared for my son and they cared for me. Why, why did they do that? They barely knew me. Well, they did it because the reign of Christ's love was ruling in their hearts. Or, or I think of uh, my, my friend Jonathan, who was in his, yeah, you know, kind of mid-20s, and he was leading this small group of young men all in their mid-20s in Washington, D.C. They were hip. They were cool. They were actually on their way up the ladder in power. And, and one Friday night, they're all dressed like they're going to go out to the club. But instead, they go to the hospital. And they sit in a hospital room with an older member of our church named Helen, who just had a stroke. And they sang hymns to her. And they prayed with her and they held her hand. When they walked out, the, the nurse asked a, a, another friend of mine, who, who's that woman? Is she, is she famous? There are all these young people coming to see her doing just what I saw these men doing. No, she's not famous. She's just a member of our church. And the reign of Jesus Christ's love is ruling in our hearts. Friends, when, when the world out there in Albuquerque sees your life together under the reign of Christ, it should take their breath away. They should want to praise God for his love. Because good government, good authority, Christ's authority is a display of love. One final thing before we move on to the second point, and, that, and that's just this. Note Solomon's response to the Queen of Sheba there in verse 13. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Solomon owes the Queen nothing, but he gives her everything. The very desires of her heart. Now, now at this point in the narrative, we might be tempted to kind of read ourselves into the narrative personally as if the Queen of Sheba represented me personally. But I think that's the wrong way to read this. The Queen doesn't so much represent us personally as she represents us corporately. She represents 
the nations. Friends, here's the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It starts right here in 1 Kings chapter 10. But ultimately this promise is fulfilled not through Solomon, but Solomon's greater son, Jesus. It was Jesus who sent his disciples out into the world. He didn't wait for the world to come to them. No, he sends us out into the world with his authority to proclaim his blessing on all who turn to him from every tribe and nation and tongue. Which means that mission, the the act of taking the good news of Jesus Christ, saving reign to the world, is not an act of neocolonialism. It is not an act of cultural oppression. It is an act of love. For Jesus owes the world nothing. But he gives the world everything. Because he gives them himself. Well, the king not only blesses the nations. Second, we need to notice that God's king is glorified by the nations. He's glorified by the nations. Look at verse 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 beckas of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. And on both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold. And all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. And once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with them in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. All right, with the Queen of Sheba safely on her way home, the camera now kind of pulls back. And we get this incredible overview of the wealth and splendor of Solomon's rule. 25 tons of gold every year in direct revenue, not counting all the other stuff. A fleet of ships bringing in all manner of wealth and exotica. And everyone who came to visit brought tribute of some kind or another. And then then the chapter ends with that, that final note on his very lucrative trade in chariots and horses. 
What Solomon did with all of this wealth was extraordinary. He, he built a throne unlike any that had ever been seen before, representing the nation of Israel and the king as the son of God over them. Here is the true King Midas, right? Everything he touches turns to gold, even his drinking goblets. Silver is so common, it's, it's worthless. The, the wealth of the nations are being brought in to adorn the temple of God, to adorn the palace of his king. And, and what we need to see in all of those details is that here is not only Solomon, but Israel at the apex, at the height of the nation's glory. In these verses, God has kept all of his promises. The promise to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, where he said, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. But it wasn't just a promise he made to Solomon. It was a promise he had made earlier to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. But it wasn't just a promise to Solomon and to David. It was actually rooted even further back in a promise that God had made to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground. In the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, the Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. But even that promise to Israel was rooted even further back in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I've already made reference to it, but here's the whole thing. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Friends, it all comes together here, right here in 1 Kings chapter 10. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, through God's anointed king. And if we stopped right there, you would assume, like if we were maybe back in the day with Solomon, and we're like looking around at everything, and now we're trying to imagine the future, we're going to imagine, man, it's just going to get better from this. I mean, we've arrived. God's kept all of his promises. We have a bright future in front of us. We don't need to make Israel great again. We're already great. But the reality is, that's not the way the history went. And it didn't go that way because Solomon did not keep his promise to God. Oh, God kept all of his promises, but Solomon did not keep his. 
The full story of Solomon's unfaithfulness is told in 1 Kings 11. And and oftentimes I think we think that's where the story of Solomon's fall, his his unfaithfulness begins. No, no, that's actually where it just blossoms into full ripeness. No, the story of Solomon's fall begins right here in chapter 10. Way back when God was giving his people the law and explaining to them what life was going to be like in the promised land, in the book of Deuteronomy, God told Moses, and Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. This is why 1 Kings 10 is written the way it's written. All the gold, all the power, when we get to chapter 11, all the, all the wives turned Solomon's heart away from the Lord. At the end of 1 Kings chapter 10, it's as if we are standing right at the turning of the page between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. All over again. For surely Solomon was a second Adam. Surely Solomon was the greatest, wisest man that had walked the earth since Adam. But like Adam, Solomon fell. And as the book of 1 Kings continues to unfold, what we see is all the glory, all the glory is ripped away from Solomon and from his sons and eventually from the whole nation. For Solomon was not just David's son, he was Adam's son. And so really the story of First and Second Kings is, is not the, the story of the, the, the glory of Israel. That's just Genesis 1 and 2. Right? No, it's, it's the story of Why God's people are once again exiled from God's place with no glory. Just as Adam and Eve had been exiled from Eden. What what this chapter is meant to to cause us to, 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 to ask, what the chapter is meant to cause us to recognize is we need a better king than even the best king that ever was. And friends, that king is Jesus. I've already talked to him about him, right? He he is the one who came as the son of David, the son of Adam, but also the son of God. And he kept the promise that Adam broke, that Solomon broke, that we all have broken. 
Jesus was obedient to God, even unto death. And because of that, he has received a kingdom that surpasses Solomon's kingdom both now and forever. Now, because the treasure that we are bringing in from the whole earth isn't silver and gold and baboons and apes, it's, it's people. People are the treasure that are being brought into the Son's kingdom. And forever. Well, forever, because as Revelation 21 makes clear, in the new heavens and new earth, the nations will walk by the light of the glory of the Lamb, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into his royal city. All the creativity, all the ingenuity, all the wealth and splendor of redeemed and glorified humanity will be given in worship to the King of kings. We were made to worship and glorify this king. Do you think people felt dishonored or belittled or somehow on the wrong end of the bargain when they brought their gifts to Solomon? Friends, not, not at all. We are ennobled when we're received by nobility. We don't have nobility here in America. But I got a little taste of that when I was a pastor in D.C. I, I, I was invited, uh, just a, kind of a small group of pastors, about 30 of us. We were invited to the White House to, to meet with a number of the president's, you know, cabinet officials and, and different people to get, to get a briefing. I don't know why they wanted to give it to me, but they did. They, I, got, I got the invitation, so of course I took it. Um, and we got this briefing on, like, you know, what's going on with the government. And we're seeing one cabinet official after another cabinet official. It's very interesting. And then all of a sudden, the president walked in. And they hadn't told us that was going to happen. And he spent about 20 minutes talking with us. Now, it was too big of a group for me to actually shake his hand and talk to him personally. But it was a small enough one for me to look him in the eye. And you realize, I, I'm in the presence of the president. Man, I walked out of there, like, on my tiptoes, right? I mean, I was ennobled by the experience. Friends, all the more when we orient our lives toward God in worship. Our glory is the result of being in the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ. We don't lose anything in giving our lives to Christ in worship. No, to the contrary, we gain everything. So Christian, do not grow discouraged with the fact that Christ may not be held in high esteem in Albuquerque today. Do not give way to the, to, to the doubt that the enemy might sow in your heart because the kingdom of Christ appears so small and, and so weak. If God kept his promise to Abraham, to Israel, to David, to Solomon, all of whom were unfaithful, will he not keep his promise to his son? 
And what did he say to his son? Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I wonder if you're like my church at home. My church is pretty evenly divided at the moment. Some of them are absolutely giddy at the election of our current president. And the other half are absolutely dismayed. And what I'm constantly reminding them and what I would remind you is that our hope has never been in the good government of our human leaders, no matter which party they come from. Our hope is that even now, Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, reigning over human history, sovereignly, certainly, down to the smallest detail. And that the day will come when he returns, and on that day, and not until that day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and will reign forever and ever. Friends, that's our hope. And so until that day, we are very much like Solomon's fleet, sent out into the world to bring the Lord's treasure, his people, into his kingdom. To live in such a way as a church so that when the world sees Christ's present reign in our lives today, their breath is taken away. May his kingdom come. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for not recognizing the glory of your present reign. We, we, we pray that you'd forgive us for putting our hope in all the wrong places. Pray that you'd forgive us for allowing other things to begin to rule and reign in our hearts. Lord, allow us, by your grace, to see Jesus in all of his resurrected glory now. Allow us to live as those who are ruled over, reigned over, by this glorious King of love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.